Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl across the neighborhood to say even they think hungry children should get food. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. Sorry, the broadcast, you know. Halloween. The comedy politics podcast that for the first Halloween ever is going to not wear a mask this year as that's much, much scarier. I'm Wearman Booyev. Yeah, it's tenuous, I know. And this week, as Conservatives excuse their vote against extending free school meals in England by saying that parents should be responsible for their children, I say if they have a problem with the Prime Minister, they should just tell him to his face. Star of 1958 sci-fi horror The Blob, Boris Johnson, is refusing to budge on the decision but has said that he doesn't want to see children go hungry, which must be why he avoids kids at all times, including his own. It must be hard for the Conservatives to understand just what they've done wrong here. I mean, most have never been children, often being born straight out of their eggs into the form of a rich old man, eating any young siblings that may emerge from the rest of the batch for sustenance. Or if they do survive the initial birthing, they are immediately gathered by the elders and sent away to places where skilled senseis show them the art of how to answer without answering. Then they have all their empathy and emotions removed with iron tongs via their rectums and are released into high society with all the knowledge they need to make sure they don't have to bother remembering anything they said five minutes ago or how anything works at all. So, when they voted against the Opposition Day debate last week for the extension of the free school meal plan to continue in the school holidays, a bill that, had it gone through, would still not have been acted on, as is the nature of opposition debates, they had no idea that this would be the straw that broke the camel's back before it then received a letter from the DWP saying it was still eligible to work and would be sanctioned if it didn't try. Footballer and people's champion Marcus Rashford had previously campaigned to extend free school meals to the Easter and then summer holidays earlier this year, which you might remember. And the government authorised that after some grumbling, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson pretending not to see or hear Rashford for a while and then ultimately U-turning while saying it was all their idea in the first place. But the idea of children in poverty still 
still being in need of food for the rest of the year and possibly even next. Ah, that's ridiculous, isn't it? There's no need for free meals outside of term time, said the number 10 spokesperson. Yeah, exactly. Who eats in the weeks in between school times like Christmas or Easter? Only idiots eat then. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't eat before Christmas Day when he was born or after Easter when he was dead, so they should all take a lesson from him. I mean, haven't these children eaten enough at the start of the year to get through the winter? Why didn't they just bury every other meal like squirrels so they could survive until spring? Selfish, selfish children. Luckily, hundreds of councils have stepped up to the plate, literally, saying they will provide meals during school holidays themselves, as have a number of small businesses and, in fact, some large ones, including McDonald's, who say they'll provide over one million free meals to kids in need. Which, considering the contents of a Happy Meal, may actually be more damaging than not providing anything. But the act of generosity from a multi-million pound company that could definitely give away more meals than that if they really wanted to, still shows that Boris Johnson is a worse clown than Ronald McDonald. This is what should happen, said Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and misused talk brush Brandon Lewis. That's where the support should be coming from, he reckons, as he says they've increased universal credit and made £63 million available to councils for targeted support, which will of course will really help as it plummets into the £16 billion funding hole that councils now have after 10 years of austerity from the very same party. Maybe the Conservatives have forgotten that bit, though, as it did happen more than five minutes ago. The same affliction suffered by MP for Mansfield and what would happen if you encased stupid in a potato, Ben Bradley, who said he voted against the bill because in his constituency, there's one kid living in a crack den and another in a brothel. And those are the ones that really need help, even though they would also get it under the free school meal initiative, as well as, you know, others. And Bradley isn't helping them anyway. It's not a one in one out thing, Ben, but also without 10 years of austerity, a crack load of policies such as a refusal to ban zero hours jobs or fund social care then chances are those kids would have been rescued from those situations some time ago i do wonder if mps like ben purposefully refuse to fill in those gaps or he just sees them as the holes poor people should be put into so he can forget that they're there in the first place Bradley got particularly angry with Deputy Labour leader and woman who always looks like she's peering at you through your curtains, Angela Rayner, who said he had misrepresented him by her tweeting a picture of his words on his tweet. Poor Ben. It must be horrible to have your words twisted by your own words. Maybe he should sue himself for libel and get himself to apologise. It was the second time Rayner was criticised by Conservative MPs last week after she used the word scum during a speech by Conservative MP and what if Sean Ryder had been withered by hate, Chris Clarkson, where he was advocating children not needing school meals. Apparently, Rayner saying the word, which means a layer of dirt on the surface of liquid, is unparliamentary language, and I can understand as it suggests that Clarkson's views hold water. Conservative MPs wrote to the Labour Party saying Rayner's use of the word scum was unacceptable and it had led to them getting lots of abuse online. I love that they think that was the only reason why they'd received abuse, as though it was some sort of gateway insult and nothing at all to do with them being very happy to suggest that it's absolutely fine for children to starve. Meanwhile, 800 former judges and legal professionals have written to the Prime Minister and Home Secretary Pretty Kids Going Hungry Makes Me Horny Patel, asking them to apologise for their harsh language and hostility towards lawyers, which they said endangers legal professionals' safety. But number 10 said simply that lawyers were not immune from criticism, which, I mean, it might be true, but they aren't a political role, and it doesn't mean that you have to give them any unsubstantiated abuse. I'm not immune to Covid, as far as I know, but I'd hope that would mean the Prime Minister wouldn't feel a need to give it to me regardless. Oh no, but he would though, wouldn't he? Either way, I'm sure Johnson or Patel wouldn't stoop so low as to call any legal type scum and would just stick to the provocative death threat inducing politicising slurs instead, because you know, they're decent people. 
Not all Conservative MPs voted against the free school meals extension. Five defied the whip, which means face carved into a gourd, Dominic Cummings, will probably already be lurking around their homes, telling them he'll feed their bones to pigs or something like that. MP for Eastbourne and blueprint for a manager at a travel agent's Caroline Ansell boldly resigned from her junior minister position to vote for the extension. Good for her, and maybe next time she should use all those public funds she took to hire her husband as her personal assistant to buy some kids some food instead, as I'm sure he's had enough free lunches at the expense of the taxpayer by now, and it's time to share. I do get that I, a mere peon or pleb, just don't understand how money works at a governmental level. Just because there is money to be spent on a failed track and trace system, management consultants for a failed track or trace system, or as it was revealed this week, the Neville Holt Opera, which gained £85,000 in cultural recovery fund, despite it being a private venue owned by Boris Johnson's personal friend, who pays for him to go on holiday in Mustique. Then again, I guess the fund never stated what type of culture it was for recovering, and elitist or corruption may technically fall under that. That money there, though, is different money, you see, to the money for spending on school dinners or to help support the people of Manchester in a Tier 3 lockdown. They, unfortunately, need the same money that the government used to balance the economy for that, so uh, sadly, uh, that's how it works. And it's very selfish that they won't think of the country when they demand it, while the government are working very hard creating opportunities for companies who've never provided PPE before to give it a go in case they think it's more fun than whatever they did before, you know, so that's just how it works. According to the Mayor of Greater Manchester and template for disappointed dads everywhere, Andy Burnham, Manchester needed £65 million to ensure everyone would financially survive the closures needed for a Tier 3 restriction, so the government gave £60 million instead and called Burnham a bully. Not scum, mind you. They weren't being that harsh. Once again, I assume that Conservatives read the tale of Robin Hood as kids and are taught that actually it's Prince John who's being oppressed throughout. Chancellor Rishi, I definitely took a briefcase to school instead of a lunchbox, Sunak, unveiled yet another jobs rescue package after the last three were as helpful as seeing someone on top of a burning building and coming to their aid by placing a bath mat on the ground and shouting, be brave and jump. This latest rescue package is Sunak removing the first bath mat and replacing it with an even smaller one, as workers in a tier three lockdown area will just receive 67% of their wages covered by the government and businesses won't pay anything towards it. So businesses are helped while everyone else works out just how to pay 67% of their bills while still eating. In line with this, if the line is a steep downwards plummeting one, self-employed support will now just be 40% of your average profits from the last three years to survive on over just three months, while three million people have still been completely ignored by all of it. If this was the starting lineup for a race, then people that have got full-time jobs would be somewhere near the beginning, everyone else would be in a completely different stadium altogether, and the government would be cheating and driving around in a golf cart that's probably owned by a pal. Don't forget, though, it is your responsibility to feed your kids. But if you do try or work or keep your shop open, even though it doesn't sell essential goods, then you'll be fined an awful lot of money. It's a contradictory chain of thought that sounds less like responsible policies and more like one of the boring challenges from the Saw franchise. It's about understanding just what conservative ideology is in 2020, and I think that's part of the problem. I mean, is it still about meritocracy, or has that one been ruined now that Marcus Rashford greedily worked his way out of poverty and is now greedily helping other people instead of buying a heated duck moat or something proper? 
Is it about the free market now that the Conservatives' Brexit plans are making that just a handful of empty, expensive stalls? Is it still actually about conserving things as they can't even keep the same jobs rescue package for more than five minutes without making it extinct? Or is it just about feeling powerful because other people are having a shit time and you're not, getting away with as much as you can while giving your mates lots of money and doing your best to avoid all accountability? I mean, maybe I've got it completely wrong though, and as a parent it is my responsibility to feed my daughter despite having lost pretty much all of my work since March. Which is why I'll be following the government's orders and using my initiative by sneaking her into the Westminster canteen to eat some subsidised lunch paid for by taxpayers. In COVID news, Scotland has unveiled a five-tier alert and restriction system, which oddly doesn't start at one but at zero and ends at four instead of five. Level zero is classed as nearly normal, which is really classic Scotland, meaning that everything is only how it was if everyone's still being very negative. Wales' fire break has included shops being told they can't sell non-essential items, which one Tesco shop took to mean women's sanitary pads, which is so hugely sexist as DIY stuff is considered essential, but somehow it doesn't count as proper if women have the painters in. Both Wales and Scotland have extended free school meals to the Easter holidays next year, which is great news for kids in England, because as they have to drive all the way to those countries just to get a Covid test anyway, they can then get something to eat at the same time. Coronavirus cases continue to rise in the UK despite local restrictions and there are rumours that the government are looking at increasing the three-tier system to have a tier four, which will probably be just like tier three but with less funding and you can only have booze in a restaurant if you get a starter as well as a main meal. Before, they'll probably then have to introduce a tier five, which will be just like four, but they'll put up the occasional warning sign and if you grass on your neighbours, you'll get sent an old biscuit in the post. By the end of last week, half of all school pupils in England had been sent home at some point during the term due to infection worries, so it's probably even more than that now considering it's half term and it would be weird if they were still in class. And the two-week quarantine period for those testing positive for Covid could be reduced to just seven or ten days depending on what the government think they can get away with saving cash on. Chairman of the Liaison Committee and evil John Oliver, Bernard Jenkin, has said a vacuum of leadership in test and trace has affected compliance with isolation rules. I'm not sure that's how I'd describe Dido Harding. I mean, she definitely sucks up cash, but she doesn't really clean up the mess, rather just sort of lets it get worse. Though, to be fair, I did have a hoover like that in my last flat, so maybe he's right. The House of Lords voted down the international law-breaking internal market bill and reinserted powers to protect farmers and UK food standards into the agriculture bill. It will now go back to the Commons, where the Conservative majority will likely remove all of those again, but it's unbelievably 2020 that the best possible future for Brexit now rests in the hands of unelected bureaucrats. Brexit talks have been extended because it will never, ever end. It will never end. And your friend's dad, who labels his food in the fridge, and EU negotiator Michel Barnier, said that both sides share a huge common responsibility, which I think is just making sure that the UK Brexit negotiator and collapsing souffle of a man, David Frost, doesn't accidentally stab himself with a biro or try to walk into a window or something. And over in the US, with just days until the presidential election, the final debate between US president and pumpkin that scares all the kids, Donald Trump, and Democratic candidate and classic mayor of a town in a horror film where he hasn't seen the monster, so what's the problem, Joe Biden, took place last week. A mute button was used, making the debate a lot more civil than the first one, but it still wasn't used properly, as otherwise they'd have just pressed it every time Trump said anything at all and instead played circus music over the top. The two clashed over COVID, climate and racism, probably on account of Trump not really recognising any of those things. Both candidates told massive porkies, though Biden only a handful compared to Trump's veritable pig farm full. 
Biden said he'd never opposed fracking, but in reality, back in March, he'd said no to new fracking, as he clearly prefers their earlier stuff. Trump, on the other hand, made statements as to how he's the least racist person in the room, which is false on several accounts, not least because the chair of the debate was Kristen Welker, a mixed-race journalist, and also because Trump is rarely in the room, being predominantly mentally vacant. The election is next Tuesday and Biden's lead is currently holding, while at this point in 2016, American horror story Hillary Clinton's lead was collapsing. Hopefully Biden won't have any last-minute email scandals, something that's unlikely to happen when he clearly can't send one without his kids' help. But he did make an error on Sunday during a rally, where Biden said the US needed to stop four more years of George, which Donald Trump has taken to mean that Biden had confused him with former idiot President George Bush. But I reckon Biden just sees Trump as the Georgia Asda president, a cheap imitation of what other countries would have had as a leader. Yeah, the Halloween theme lasted all of two sentences this year, didn't it? I really wish I hadn't used up some of the previous year's lines so early. I mean, if only I'd known that actually Monsters and Ghouls would be a blessed relief this year, would be more relevant in 2020 than, say, last year. I'd have used it then. Still, you live and learn. I can't say I'm not pleased that trick-or-treating is banned this year, uh, though it would be a more viable way to get sustenance to children than relying on the government to do it, I suppose. This school meals thing is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it was an opposition day motion, which means regardless of what it is, the government would vote against it on principle. But, I mean, they made a mistake with that one, didn't they, the way it's been publicised, and they've now doubled down on making sure they don't provide these meals so much that they now have to just go along with it. And it's really not great for their image, which was already fucking awful. It's just funny how some of their supporters who are happy to go along with so many awful things they've done have now drawn the line at not extending free school meals. I mean, for me, as a vegetarian, it's a bit like when someone who eats meat says they couldn't eat a dog or something. I know that might make sense to you, but to me, they've all got faces and bums, so what is the difference? Hence, I wouldn't eat any of them. Okay, it's a sort of flawed analogy, but I just find it fascinating when people are like, yeah, we're happy for a government who increases child poverty, but we're angry, though, that they won't give those kids they put into poverty some food. I suppose it also wasn't a pandemic before and maybe it's changed minds now that a lot more people are in a terrible situation and not just a handful that they can feel powerful over. But even so, it's just remarkable how there are a number of people who continue to be fine uh, and they're just listing affordable ways to make a usually vitamin-free meal on Twitter in the most unhelpful way, as though that might be the problem rather than, you know, overall survival. Yeah, you could draw a whole chicken on your arm and then let your kids eat your arm and that's free and that leaves your other arm to sweep chimneys or mop piss or whatever it is that poor people do that's what i'd do just not with my family because i'm better than you or with my arm you know that sort of thing just amazed by it i genuinely can't even begin to imagine justifying letting kids go hungry in my head and i've got a daughter sorry agent who regularly rejects the nice dinners i've made her and i often have a split second or two where i think fine you can eat nothing then i'll just leave you in the park to forage for acorns which actually she'd love because she loves finding acorns and i just feel mean and stupid Anyway, rant over. How are you this Halloween? Um, My brother, the one whose music I usually steal for this podcast, um, he has got the dreaded COVID and he's having a really rough time of it. Um, Seems to be getting through it, though. I I don't want to sort of uh, big it up too much. He's he's just, uh, he said it's like a very, very bad sort of hangover feeling sickness. Um, We saw him the week before last, though, so we've been counting down the days to make sure that we don't have it either, which I don't think I have. But it's very hard to tell when preliminary symptoms include fatigue, which I've had ever since becoming a dad. Uh, I'm always 
always I've always got that. How will I know if I've got COVID? Will I be extra fatigued? Is that possible? Um, it's really something when the clocks go back and you get an extra hour of sleep and somehow your kid now just wakes up an hour earlier, which sums up, I guess, why it's called Greenwich Mean Time. Um, anyway, no, it doesn't matter what time you listen to this or what time zone even. It is very much appreciated as always. Thank you for coming back uh, to this show in uh, what is a odd week of not really Halloween-y uh, podcasting. Um, a special big thanking times this week to somebody, Taz, Connell, Helen and Jenkins for the Kofi donations and to Catherine for joining the Patreon as well. And if you like the show, or at the very least, don't hate it with all of your soul uh, and wish to contribute to the only income I have anymore, then you too can head to the Kofi.com forward slash Bro, Patreon.com forward slash Bro, or the ACAST supporter site. Sorry, I'm really not doing any Halloween justice, am I? Sorry, one second. You can donate your soul, eyes, or fastboard to ko-fi.com. Yeah, that wasn't worth it, was it? Uh, you can also review the show and a big shout out to Brod, Wocket One and Woe Bro for your lovely words on Apple Podcasts this week. And particularly the latter, Woe Bro, uh, who spelt my name wrong in a way that Donald Trump would have to make an effort to do. Um, despite my name being written on every single episode of the show, I applaud uh, your efforts. Um, but it's still not as good as the music festival a few years ago that listed me as Doobie Tay Ram, like I'm a Middle Eastern jazz musician. That will always be my favourite. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Give the show a five-hour review on your podcast app of choice, or just write it in blood in the mirror and say pop up three times. Um, there's going to be no podcast next week, uh, or there might be a little one, sort of. Uh, it's the US election on Tuesday, so I thought it probably just best to let that happen and record a small something after, depending on uh, the results. Um, if loads of new K news, new K news, old K news, UK news. If loads of UK news happens between now and then, I'll record a small something for Monday as well. Um, I was planning on doing some sort of live streaming thing on Tuesday night, but then I remembered that I like to sleep, and if it's awful, I don't really want to see it and if it's good then I'm happy to wake up with a nice surprise for the first time since I don't know my sixth birthday probably I don't even remember what happened for my sixth birthday and in fact Thatcher was in charge and so I'm almost certainly wrong um I'm going to appear on the social distance warriors live stream at some point on Tuesday night the very fun mostly Manchester comedy collective who are going to be broadcasting throughout the night and the link for that will pop up on their Twitter soon at social d warriors so do check that if you want to hear me not being able to make sense of anything um oh and apologies for last week's terrible pronunciations of pseudoscience I'm not sure why I got it in my head that it was Suedo science, which I think sounds like the science of a funky dance. Yes, let's study the Suedo, uh, rather than pseudo, you know, which is obviously dough made by Sue. Um, but thanks to the many of you uh, who complained, uh, you were absolutely right too. I also mispronounced something else that episode. Was it a controversy that I might have said like controversy or something like that? Anyway, that was an error as I had a burp coming uh, and then I edited the burp out but forgot to fix the word because tiredness. One day I'll leave the burp in for you true fans. And that's it for admin, because let's face it, we're all tired. It's why Halloween feels so pointless this year, because I'll be asleep long before the witching hour, and it's hard to even think of fancy dress when I've been solidly in tracksuit bottoms since March. Is it possible to dress up as, like, I don't know, a vampire on a Zoom call? I guess they wouldn't be seen on it anyway, so that's something to think about. Um, On this week's show, I am talking to historian and writer Evan Smith about the scary subject of cancel culture, which isn't really scary unless you're a Nazi. They've got really rubbish, haven't they, Nazis? You know, I mean, back in the day... They weren't even afraid of opening up the Ark of the Covenant or living on the moon. But now they're all upset if some people on social media think they're boring. Not so much dead snow as dead snowflake, am I right? Yeah, I said it. I went there. Anyway, there's that. And there's also a few thoughts on what to look out for in American Votey Times next week.
While you or I may be spending 2020 concerned about catching COVID-19, not being able to afford to pay bills or putting the wrong jacket on for the ever-changing weather and not realising until it's far too late, yes, that is as important as the others. It is. It really is. For some politicians and political commentators, among others, the biggest threat to their existence is the possibility of being cancelled. It might be hard for you to imagine, but for some who reside in the lofty heights, there is a continuous worry that they might post one of their perfectly normal opinions online about how they believe that their ethnicity is the best one because they've only shut themselves twice in adult life, whereas other races are known for cat burglary and eating giraffes. Or perhaps something about how it's disgusting that some people can't understand that they should be you know, working in the mines and eating gravel because they deserve it on account of not being born into a puddle of gold. Something like that. And then the next thing they know, the woke liberal mob of ordinary humans who live in a progressive society may decide to cancel or no platform them, meaning that they won't get to do anything anymore apart from carry on complaining on social media and then do loads of television appearances about how they've been cancelled and get a book deal to write it up but even longer. Yes, there is always an argument for hearing both sides of an argument, though if you follow that thought through, there's also another side to that argument that says that you shouldn't. Increasingly, that latter point is correct, as there really shouldn't be a counter-argument to elements of existence that in today's day and age, we have all mostly agreed are the way humanity should be. Does anyone really need to listen to someone who says racism is right, or that murder can be fine if you look sexy while doing it, or that red trousers are not actually bad? Won't that just persuade others that those opinions might actually be somehow valid when really they should just be confined to that one family member you just really try to avoid at get-togethers instead of on national platforms? Doesn't that mean that no platforming is a pretty valid thing to do? Is cancel culture a thing or isn't it just an easy way of saying someone didn't like what I said and that's not fair? Can we take columnist criticisms that cancel culture is ruining comedy or debate or everything seriously when the next week they'll be condemning a TV show for having a joke they didn't like in it and insisting it's pulled off air? How can we take the idea seriously when Conservatives are changing school PSHE curriculums to teach that cancel culture is bullying, while also insisting various political ideologies that they don't approve of can't be taught anymore? More importantly, what term can we now use for the government's lack of funding to the arts, meaning that they're actually cancelling culture? And how do we cancel them doing that? And cancel the other things that'd actually be good to cancel, like poverty, climate change and Christmas flavours of crisps. Well, luckily, I was recently pointed in the direction of Evan Smith, a historian, writer and academic who researches political extremism, no platforming and cancel culture, among other things. Earlier this year, Evan's hefty tome entitled No Platforming, A History of Anti-Fascism, Universities and the Limits of Free Speech was published, looking at the history of universities blocking Nazis from doing talks and how it's developed in today's modern free speech crisis, causing people like sickly llama Lawrence Fox to make lots of noise about how he's constantly silenced or something. Evan is based in Adelaide and so very kindly navigated time zones to give me a bit more context on the subject so many often right-wing commentators and politicians are endlessly using as buzzwords while hoping you never actually think about what it means. I asked Evan all about if cancel culture is actually a thing, if social media has made all of this much worse and if we should really just be cancelling the entire internet. You know, except for this podcast. Ofs. I hope you enjoy. Here is Evan. Hi, Evan. Um, this is a big first question, uh, really, and probably I sort of don't know if I need any more questions after asking this. It might be our full conversation, but is cancel culture, no platforming and supposedly erasing history, are they real things? I mean, should we be concerned about them being a threat to free speech? Because, you know, I'm, I'm quite a cynic about whether or not any of those things are actual problems. Yeah, so the thing is that this whole idea of cancel culture is uh, a kind of a, a broad, nebulous concept. 
and it entails many different things. So it's cancel culture is something that it's, uh, we hear for, uh, particularly from the United States lately and from North America, and it encapsulates like protests and what we would what we would call no platforming uh, through to like criticism people uh, instances possibly where people would try to get people other people fired um disinvitations from speaking all kinds of different things are all kind of lumped together under this uh, under this idea of cancel culture so things like that harper's letter which was um published a few months ago now kind of really trying to bring in very different uh, experiences and and episodes into this one kind of catch-all term because you know uh, people being cancelled, which is a really kind of a social media thing. Um, you know whether it that all that there are many kind of instances, but they don't. I, you know, I can't think saying cancer culture exists as something that we should really be worried about. That yes, there are there are there are times when people are quote unquote cancelled, but there are but often the the people who claim to be cancelled pop up again and again and again. Like uh, like you know, if Mel Gibson was cancelled, he wouldn't be making another film now. You know, <laughs> if people were cancelled, they wouldn't have columns in national newspapers. You know, if people were really cancelled. Um, they wouldn't go on extensive speaking tours uh, when you're able to, you know, go on speaking tours. Um, you know, things like no platforming. No platforming does exist. It is a, it is a policy of the National Union of Students in the in Britain, and it is a tactic used by anti-fascists and anti-racists. But should we be worried about it? Um, well, if you're on, uh, you know for lack of a better term, the right side of history, you probably shouldn't be concerned about no platforming. Um, you know, that it does exist, but is it, a, is it a threat to free speech as we know it? I don't believe so. Uh, um, yeah, that, you know, that there's this idea that there's a free speech crisis, and I think that using the word crisis uh, suggests that something needs to be done um, that you know that that action needs to be taken, um, but I, but I don't think that's really the case. Um, I think that the, that the idea there is a free speech crisis is manufactured particularly by those on different strands of the right, so the conservative right and the libertarian right, to kind of push back against uh, what they perceive as kind of. Uh, woke or politically correct uh, criticisms. I mean, that was part of my reason for not really, I suppose, I saying I don't believe in it is a bit, perhaps the wrong way to, to put it. But, but you know, yeah. uh, on one hand, I hear see a lot of right-wing places saying this is cancel culture. Um, and then at the same time, for example, in, in the newspaper today, that we're, uh, today we're discussing this, um, the Conservatives are talking about destroying the Church of England or, you know, <laughs> because because they've, they've spoken yeah. out against politics. So I'm thinking, well, isn't that cancel culture? Isn't this exactly what you're supposedly against? Yeah. Yeah, so one thing recently was that the Department for Education had these new guidelines that said that, uh, you know, that 
critiques of capitalism and kind of what they labeled extreme ideologies weren't to be discussed in the classroom. But then at the same time, it, it says that no platforming and, and cancelling people was a form of bullying, even though that's kind of what the government was trying to do with, with these kind of new guidelines. Yeah, it seems just it just seems massively hypocritical to me. Uh, and, and I mm. suppose also, isn't there, you know, shouldn't we be allowed to criticize people? That's got to be a, a, a thing. Why, you know, if if cancel culture is a bad thing, does that stop us criticizing anything? Should there not be Amazon reviews? Should there not be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> podcast reviews or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, I think uh, Dawn Foster, who is a journalist, she wrote a really great thing for The Guardian a couple of years ago where she said that uh, the people that claim there's a free speech crisis um, don't want freedom of speech. They want freedom from criticism. Mm. Uh, and, I th- you know, that, that this kind of this idea that there's a free speech crisis really comes out of uh, people who traditionally were in power or in control or had their voices heard got a pushback you know via social media via kind of uh you know political activism um you know social media is really kind of advanced everyone can have can have a voice sometimes that isn't a good thing you know that you know people just make you know people make uh unnecessary criticisms and you know the, pe- the troll culture and stuff like that, but uh, but it's not the cancer culture. It's not the crisis that uh, they purport it to be. Sure, it's that they're sort of uh, unable to move with the times because it sort of feels like we've gone from PC culture to, you know, there, there was mm. a lot of oh you're overly PC to now it's people are woke and it it feels very much like the same thing but a different term. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that 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 yeah. So this all this stuff has a history, like that we we may feel that what's happened in the last decade is new and that there's like kind of we've never had this kind of crisis before. So Toby Young's Free Speech Union kind of claims that we're in the greatest free speech crisis since the Second World War or similarly in uh, America that there's a kind of a, this centre-liberal uh, kind of thing called persuasion uh and it says, you know, we haven't had this kind of threat to freedom of speech since the Second World War. But these these things have a history, you know, that people were complaining in the 1990s about PC culture. Now they're complaining about wokeness. And it's very much kind of running on similar tropes. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that um, uh, I sort of just just reading even the beginning of your book, I was quite surprised by how far back no platforming went or uh, how far back um, just, in fact, universities kind of deciding that they didn't want to hear from certain speakers. I, I had no idea of that history of protest, but it, it, it dates back a lot longer than just the last few years, doesn't it? Yeah. So the thing is that, that really there's this, um, you know, kind of media focus on no platforming and uh, uh, kind of uh, this kind of free speech crisis at universities. Uh, they lump in things like safe spaces and trigger warnings uh, and no platforming, but that no platforming has existed since the 1970s as a policy of the NUS. And then there were kind of these kind of moral panics about students being overly censorious and being like trampling on free speech 
really since the late 1960s. You know, since 1968 and the student revolution is that when you start seeing uh, this criticism that students are intolerant of other people's views, that they that universities should be, you know, open to all ideas um, and that students uh, are unable to deal with this, you know, so kind of this idea that students are now something different from what they were over the last few decades is not historically accurate. Right. Sure. So it's, I mean, it, it just feels entirely like a political, uh, a political tactic. And, and I suppose one of the most important questions is does no platforming work? Is that, you know, th- throughout history, has that been an effective way to kind of censors, uh, censor fascism? Um, is it, you know, sh- should we be not giving these people, a pla- not giving these people a platform? Is that the best way to stop fascism from spreading? Yeah. So um, I think that, yeah, that this, that you shouldn't give platforms to fascists and explicit racists and other people that, um, you know, promote hate speech. Um, If you give these people platforms, then you, uh, like, you know, allow them to kind of speak and promote these ideas that there's this kind of liberal idea that you should um, give them platforms to challenge them, to debate them. But then if you're debating with fascists and racists, then you're kind of bringing them into kind of a discourse and kind of giving them this kind of, uh, giving this idea that there's a legitimate discourse and legitimate debate can be had with people who hold these extreme views. Um, You know, and that practically it doesn't work like that often that when there's, when people, when fascists, um, so uh, uh, invited to debate, they use it to kind of spread their message. So, like when Tommy Robinson from the English Defence League, he debated at the Oxford Union a couple of years ago, and he was like, "This is great. This is this is really kind of like, um, you know, brought a lot, uh, brought a lot of attention to our viewpoints and kind of." Um, and it, what it did is it kind of mainstreamed his arguments that were kind of on the, you know, that were more on the fringes before that. Uh, people point to, like, when Nick Griffin was on Question Time as a successful uh, episode where, you know, that, that a fascist was debated, he was, he was kind of challenged with his ideas. Um, but that it, that's... that it didn't work because um, that uh, the poll showed that Nick Griffin increased his popularity after being on Question Time um, briefly, briefly, um, and that what actually stopped the BNP after that was grassroots political activism, particularly in in, in London, in those boroughs where the BNP had gained a vote, had gained momentum. It was pushed back by local uh, anti-fascist activism campaigning heavily for um, a Labor vote in that in that 2010 election. Um, so in a lot of people's minds is that Nick Griffin being on Question Time 
and the and the and the falling away of the BNP vote um, in 2010 is kind of that there's a connection, but actually that um, Nick Nick Griffin being on Question Time kind of was a distraction from the kind of the push, uh, the kind of grassroots push against the BNP. Wow. I'm really surprised about it because I remember watching that question time thinking, God, he just looks like such an idiot. <laughs> you know, I feel like he just, I, I didn't, uh, I sort of remember him not putting up much of a defence, but I suppose that's from my point of view where I wouldn't have agreed with him anyway. And had I agreed with him, I might have seen him as being, you know, attacked by the, you know, the, uh, the woke yeah. mob. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that, that, um, kind of like it, it, that, it kind of um, cemented in the people's minds. So people who didn't like uh, Nick Griffin weren't it, didn't like him more, and the people that did like Nick Griffin were kind of like, you know, they they weren't affected by him being under attack. Um, it was really what pushes down the BNP vote uh, in the next year is really the activism. It's not the, his media appearance, um, and I think that. If you look throughout the history, when fascism is challenged and not given uh, the space to promote its ideas, um, it, that's when anti-fascism is successful. So the no platform. So the idea of no platform is essentially that you should not allow fascists to publicly uh, promote their ideas to organise to um, kind of uh, generate publicity and that uh, things like the Anti-Nazi League, the Rock Against Racism in the 1970s or even kind of Unite Against Fascism and Hope Not Hate and those kind of anti-fascist movements in the, in the, in the 90s and 2000s kind of like show that when, when fascists um, are challenged and not given that space, is that um, they are pushed back into the margins. It's when they're given kind of airtime and kind of uh, column inches to, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of online spaces to kind of promote their ideas. It's when it gets tricky. Like, you know, that you look at Nigel Farage. Now, you know, Nigel Farage is not a fascist, but he's on the kind of like the, the fringes of what is the acceptable... Uh, you know the mainstream right um that he the fact that he was given me uh, like radio television newspaper you know that he was given all this you know that people debated with him people challenged him in the media but that didn't see the the ukip or the brexit party you know fall away you know that we we that we've been challenging people like that um in debate for you know for, for for years and that's not what's pushed that and you know it hasn't had that effect you know that uh the global surge of the right particularly the populist right has not um come from uh, has not been hindered by being challenged to debate okay well a couple of questions for you i mean and, and i i 
I, you can enlighten me on Australian media, but in the UK, one of people people often say that one of the main issues is that they aren't challenged. So Nigel Farage is often on telly, says a load of stuff, and the newsreader sort of goes, "Yeah, great, that was Nigel Farage," and doesn't ever say, "Hang on a second, <laughs> you're making outlandishly racist statements." Is is that as you know? It, you know, would his uh, appearances on these shows be as much of a problem, or, or any of these kind of? Uh, right and far right um, politicians would their appearances be as much of a problem if they were properly challenged um, or would it still just be having the the space and the appearances is still you know still the, the problem yeah I, th- I think that it you know it might have a bit of effect if they were properly challenged and not given that kind of softball uh, interviews that, that you see people like Farage uh, get uh, in the media but I think that but they, but still, it would allow them kind of like the legitimacy that their debates, that their opinions, even if being challenged, are worth engaging with in the first place. You know, the, similar in Australia, we have we have similar kind of like uh, things like Sky News. Uh, so there's a Sky News in Australia, and they constantly give. Uh, you know, platforms to people from the populist right and the far right, and um, you know, then they're not they're not challenged, uh, and even when they are put in a debate scenario, they're still putting it out, or putting it out as like, oh, this is something you can engage with. This is you know, you can have a reasonable debate with someone who says the white, you know that white people are under, you know, kind of threat of being a minority, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that uh, white genocide is, you know, is a, is a debatable concept, you know, that, that um, even, yeah, even bringing them into the media landscape kind of gives them some kind of legitimacy. Sure. I, I guess it's, it, you know, it very much in the same way that, you know, having a climate change denier on and you're thinking this is not based in any science and yet you're legitimising that their viewpoint is uh, should be heard. Um, and I suppose the other question I have for you is that, because you, you're an avid Twitterer, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, the issues I sort of find on Twitter is that people like to retweet far-right people in order to criticise them. And actually, would it then be far more effective, say, like what's happened with Katie Hopkins, where she was just banned off the platform, would it be far more effective for everyone to just ignore and and block as opposed to... uh, Are we just amplifying these voices by even making a joke or or poking fun at them? Yeah. So um, I think that that's that's the thing that... um, it's more it's more difficult um, that there are some people like the the campaign run by Hope Not Hate to that deplatforming works. So Hope Not Hate and Joe Mulhall has written a lot about this, and you will see it on on Twitter that uh, that people who promote hate speech should not have a social media platform. So they campaign for people like Katie Hopkins or Milo, yeah. Milo Y um, and 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 Tommy Tommy Robinson and, and others, um, you know, they shouldn't be on Twitter. They shouldn't be on Facebook. Um, they shouldn't be able to use things like PayPal or or things like that. And they say that deplatforming works. Um, 
one of the things with that is that um, you're giving the power then to these kind of tech giants, and that can be a problem um, because of you know the, the the you know particularly with things like Facebook and um, their kind of algorithms and the way they kind of uh, selectively uh, choose what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Um, so Jeff Sparrow, who wrote a book um, last year called Fascists Among Us, which was about Christchurch and kind of uh, online uh, hate speech and so forth like that, he says that we can't just go down that route of uh, for for calling for the tech giants or stuff to uh, deplatform these people because then that leaves us kind of at the mercy of the decisions of, of tech giants. Um, but there's also a very good uh, argument that, you know, that you should not engage um, with kind of right-wing people online, block. You don't need to, you don't need to offer them uh, um, kind of you know well you don't certainly shouldn't be getting into debates with these people you don't need to give them uh you know the time of day uh you know what what, what is this you know uh, block report and move on um but coming back to the thing of of you know retweeting um you know more i think that yeah you shouldn't retweet people because you know a, a tweet a, you know a quote tweet is still it's still, you know, look uh, like they look. They're getting engagement. They're getting, uh, you know, their message out there. Um, you know, screenshot and critique, or ignore. Um, so, you know, it, it it's, you know, it's it's more nuanced. Um, but yeah, that you know that that. Um, it, but it, uh, we should be thinking about. Should we be engaging with these people? Should we be, uh, you know, uh, discussing their ideas? Is there a way of confronting hate speech? Is there a way of confronting racism and fascism and stuff like that without giving them the oxygen of publicity? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Evan in a minute, but first... I'm not sure if you've heard about it, uh, but next week America is having a big election thingy. No? You know America, that small place to the left of Ireland? Yeah, you know it. The one with all the noise, the burgers and where Tony Dunza comes from. Know it? Yeah, that one. Well, depending on how next week goes, it's either the end of the Trump presidency, a tumultuous four years of horror division, and a repealing of human rights worse than if human rights was a giant banana and King Kong had found it and didn't like it. That would be a repeal, right? Because he'd peel it. But then you go, uh, I'll peel it again. He totally would. Bloody King Kong. What's he like? But if it is at the end of Trump's time in the Orange House, then it's the beginning of the end of America as any sort of superpower, if that hadn't already started in 2016, and a likely escalation of extremist far-right groups, police brutality, nepotism, corruption, and Jared Kushner being given more important things to do, despite him being the sort of deadweight who's best utilised as a draft excluder. If Joe Biden wins, well, who's to say those things wouldn't still happen as a retaliation to Trump's loss or perhaps a continuation of where the US was already going? But it had at least happened slower, slightly more coherently and with less tweeting at 4am as Joe is quite old and probably wouldn't be up then unless his prostate is playing up again. It is a big deal election though and whatever happens, it will change a number of things, not least the levels of risk White House staffers have of catching Covid. Rather than predict what might happen or what has gone before, I thought it might be handy to explain a few things if you, like me, are planning to stay up and try to make sense of anything that's going on. And by that I mean I'll last till about midnight and then I'll give up and hope that I wake up in the morning to find that Donald Trump hasn't celebrated his second term by trying to bomb Covid-19. Oh, and don't forget to listen back to the episode two weeks ago with Matthew McGregor, where he talked all about the US election in brilliant detail uh, with actual uh, knowledge about it rather than what I'm about to do now. Why should we care? Well, good question. I mean, we have our own narcissistic, psychopathic, big-haired weirdo here, with 2015 in human form as the only contender, and this election happens so late at night, why should I give a god-diggity damn? Well, for a start, four more years of Trump could mean more global instability as he operates an America first policy that is combined with him not really knowing what that means and having a complete disregard for all existing American foreign policy relationships. Which on one hand is great as US foreign policy for many years was largely to turn up somewhere, kill everyone and nick their oil. But it also isn't great as his Middle East peace process mostly involves Israel and Saudi Arabia annexing Palestine and he's pally with Kim Jong-un which is just weird but also entirely understandable when you think about it. For us here in the UK, Trump is of course pro-Brexit, which our government might think is good, but he's also already interfered on our 5G contract with Huawei and may interfere with other possible contracts with China in the future too. He also may affect relationships that we have with other European countries and our relationship with Iran and whoever he's decided to start a war with while using Twitter in one of his ranting sprees at three in the morning. Trump may also pull the US further out of NATO, which would mean the UK and EU have to pay a lot more towards their own defence costs, which could mean a massive rise in taxes for all of us lot. If Biden wins, on the other hand, it might mean the US gets all cuddly with the UN again and NATO, as well as global climate policy agreements, which would benefit everyone, and Biden is keen to re-engage the Iran nuclear deal. But the issue for the UK is that Biden has Irish heritage, you know, like everyone in America apparently, and is keen to see the Good Friday Agreement honoured. 
He also described Johnson last December as a physical and emotional clone of Trump, which is about right, you know, if the cloning process went wrong during the tanning stage. So that might mean that he allies more closely with Paris and Berlin than he does London, seeing them as bigger centres for European interests. So basically, yeah, it does matter for us here in the UK, especially for the Queen, because if Biden wins, she can crack open a brew and the thought of not having to host that stupid oath that kept standing in front of her again. What else is being voted for? Yeah, it's not just President that's being elected on November the 2nd. No, no. It is also all 435 seats in the House of the Representatives, 35 of the 100 seats in the United States Senate, 13 state and territorial governorships and a shedload of local elections too. What be them? Well, the House of the Representatives is basically the US's House of Commons, with members of Congress elected to pass federal legislation, which then gets sent to the Senate and then passed by the President. Hence why during the Obama years the Senate was Republican, so nothing got passed. The Congress people or Congress persons or Congress thingies are allocated to each state based on population according to the US Census, with each district getting one. So, for example, California's bloody massive, so it gets 53, whereas Alaska only gets one Congress person because it's freezing and mostly occupied by bears. Really, it should be represented by a bear, but you try and get one to stand. They get really grisly about it. Yeah, I went there. Whichever party gets most seats gets to elect a Speaker of the House. Then there's the United States Senate, sort of their House of Lords, but with less Andrew Lloyd Webber and more Mitch McConnell with his misshapen Jenny Blamange face and char-grilled hands like a birthday party spread gone horribly wrong. Each state is represented by two senators and they serve terms of six years, which are staggered, so only one third of the Senate is up for election each time because, hey, why not make this process even more complicated? Perhaps for real fun, they should just split that up again so everyone with surnames beginning with A to E, where their birthdays are divisible by 79, can only be outvoted in June, and any with the star sign Gemini who have all their teeth could be elected on a Thursday. I bet that does actually happen for one of the local elections that I haven't got to yet. I bet. Anyway, them senators get the final say on bills before the president signs them, and it's presided over by the vice president, so for the past four years, it's been old very fly for an old white guy, but not in the cool way, in the actual fly way, Mike Pence. Then there's governorships, which are up for grabs in what's known as the gubernatorial elections, which is a word I really like, because it sounds like it was made up by a child with a gobstopper in their mouth. Governors are chief execs of each state and have sovereign police power, as well as being political and ceremonial heads of state. It's a position that was from way back in the old colonial days, and they just sort of kept it, you know, along with the racism. Them's being elected in Montana, Utah, Delaware, Indiana, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, North Carolina, North Dakota, Utah, again, oh, I've said that twice, Vermont, Washington, West Virginia, Utah again, and also in the territories of American Samoa and Puerto Rico and Utah as well. Then there's several big shed loads, like, you know, those ones that are basically a wooden house, but five of them at least, of local mayoral elections. The Native American United Kitawa Band of Cherokees are electing their tribe leader, and Washington, D.C. shadow senators and shadow representatives are also up for election, and they get to work out where best to stand when it's sunny. No, sorry, they get charged with lobbying Congress for making Washington, D.C. its own state. Oh, and also voters in D.C. get to vote on or against Initiative 81, which would make certain psychoactive drugs, including mushrooms and peyote, the lowest law enforcement priority. So I say go for it, because if Trump gets in again, they might well need it. Okay, so who needs to win what? So you might remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton and her weird smile that looked like any moment she might try and bite you won the popular vote. But she lost to Trump on the Electoral College vote because democracy or number wang or something. The Electoral College is a body of electors, duh, established by the US Constitution, and they decide who the president and vice president are, making you wonder why any voters bother, really. 
There are 538 electors and to win a presidency, a candidate needs at least 270 of those. It's supposed to maintain the system of American federalism and preserving the constitutional role, but they can also just choose someone the public haven't, and it means that citizens in less populated states get more of a vote, so it leads to swing states deciding everything, and it all being quite a shit show that means you can't really work out what's happening until it does. There are eight swing states this time round. Arizona, Florida, yeah, fucking Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. According to the polls, Biden is ahead in all of them. So yeah, you may as well just go to bed on Tuesday, right, and chill. No, because polls were very wrong last time on account of Trump voters not openly saying they were Trump voters when asked, polls not being all that representative when it comes to a country as massive and diverse as the US, and the Electoral College telling all the people to go fuck themselves anyway. In 2016, there were big issues with states that the Democrats completely neglected, and areas in states such as Michigan where people queued for hours to vote for every election but left the presidential box blank, screwing Clinton's vote because they didn't really like her but also didn't trust Trump either. Data shows that Republicans always turn out to vote, and the Democratic base is there but doesn't bother so much. Sound familiar? So if Democrats don't turn up, Republicans do. That always sways in Trump's favour. And with COVID-19 all over the place, there are loads of questions as to whether people can turn up or if they'll just be too busy coughing up their faces in the first place. But, but also, 58 million votes have already been posted and 80 million are predicted, which could delay the final result as each one has to be counted and then matched to a signature on a separate voting card to protect from electoral fraud. In 2016, it took over a month to count the final vote due to postal votes, but by then Trump had won the Electoral College anyway, so honestly, I don't know why anyone bothers doing anything except smashing things and overthrowing the system. Also, a big difference this time are signs that African-American voters are voting when they largely abstain for Clinton, and that young voters aged 18 to 29 have already voted in early voting, in five times the numbers in Florida, eight times in North Carolina, and 19 times the amount in Michigan than they did in 2016. Could this favour Biden? Or are young people now so nihilistic about the future they want more Trump so it'll just be over more quickly? So there you go. Hopefully that'll clear up some of what you see on Tuesday night if you choose to stay up and put yourself through it. Let's hope for the best, which, let's face it, is any result but the worst. On the plus side, not for Americans at all, just as in the UK, if Trump does get in again, which is still possible because, well, everything, then at least we can breathe a sigh of relief that we're still only led by the second most awful head racist bigot on the planet. And frankly, the way 2020 is going, that might have to do. Good luck, America. Good luck, everyone. And now, back to Evan. Do you think, because uh, obviously you've studied um, anti-fascist movements and sort of uh, people that have tackled racism for, uh, for in history, um, do you think it's harder for us to do now? Because there just seems to be so many more elements in which people can spout kind of far right theories and you know i i sort of I, I love like on twitter the amount of posters of campaigns and events and things that you put up from uh from the past and i feel like now we've got five thousand groups on facebook trying to tackle it that aren't you know and still we're still struggling is it it has the internet basically made it worse <laughs> well yeah i think i think that's the case i think that the many people say you know the the, the kind of general consensus would be that the, fu- the the internet has been instrumental to uh, m- uh, to the far right reorganizing and uh, rebranding and remobilizing in in ways that makes it more difficult. Um, that always when there's kind of large groups of of fascist IRL in you know in real life. Is that they are challenged, you know that uh, you know that even when you know if you see these kind of anti-lockdown 
demonstrations where elements of the far right uh, organise stuff that they are challenged. They, they don't have the free reign of the streets they want, but it's much harder to combat online organising and online, um, you know, th- these kind of far right online spaces because in, in one way that you can, it, the, it, it'll always spread. It's very atomized. It's very kind of like um, cut off that it's not just one homogenous group. It's, it's everywhere. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's like very hard to combat. Um, and also then, you know, people can self-radicalise. So you don't need... So a lot of the times is that these people pop up. You know, they, have, they start to have connections with others, but, that, but they don't need much. Um, and I, th- I think that the internet has made it harder and more difficult to kind of counteract the far right, but... We need to, I think that, you know, people like Jess Sparrow who wrote about this book, that, you know, that we need to um, be, always be trying to do this and we can't, and we have to be doing it ourselves. We always have to be vigilant. We we can't rely on the government to take, to, to do it for us. We can't rely on the tech giants to do it for us, you know, that we need to be organising ourselves. No, I, yeah, I, 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 um, I agree with that. Especially sort of in terms of the UK government, I wouldn't rely on them to do anything right now. Um, we might have to, we might have to no platform the internet. Um, I mean, <laughs> speaking of the UK government, one of your other areas of research that you're currently working on, um, is uh, about border control, um, in Britain, Australia, particularly in the last century, and uh, which um is absolutely uh linked to uh the far the far right in in britain at the moment because that's where a lot of um and and australia as well where a lot of anti-immigration arguments and we've recently had the rise of the home office complaining about asylum seekers and uh you know and, and trying to net dinghies and all these bizarre childish tactics um what similarities have you been seeing in your research to kind of today's harsh policies and were any of them effective in the way that governing parties wanted them to be yeah so um so the research i've been looking at uh has as uh, lately has been looking at british and australian border control over the last century and that they're kind of two two narratives that that, that have worked uh, that have kind of been traditionally accepted one is that australia had a very harsh Border control system throughout the 20th century uh, became increasingly liberal uh, in the 1970s and 1980s and has then become more harsh uh, and restrictive in the 21st century, particularly around asylum seekers um, and that um, that, that uh, asylum seekers, even though they make up a very small proportion of um Migrants to Australia are, are what the the government focused a lot on. We've had since um, the nineteen nineties that, that there has been mandatory detention for people seeking asylum coming by boat, not by plane, um, and then that has moved over the last twenty years uh, offshore. So that we had detention centres in uh, several islands in the Indian Pacific Oceans. There is 
uh, a, a detention centre now in uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, and so, so that um, the kind of that the, we have a very strict border control system, very much focusing on keeping undesirable, you know, in quotation marks, undesirable uh, refugees and asylum seekers out of the, uh, off the, out of the Australian continent. Um, and you know, Britain has had a similar uh, another narrative that. Up until the 1960s, it was kind of an open uh, border system for Commonwealth migrants and then has, has got more and more restrictive. Um, our research showed that prior to the Commonwealth Immigrants Act in the 1960s and that kind of that clamp down after the Windrush generation is that there were people within the British government and British policymakers who wanted to... Uh, to uh, emulate what was happening in Australia. They wanted those strict border controls that the White Australia policy had and they wanted to implement it. So from 1905, when you first see the Alien, the Aliens Act against uh, migrants from Eastern Europe being brought in in Britain, there's the people that say, we need to extend this further. People, uh, countries like Australia, South Africa and Canada, they can restrict anyone they want. Britain uh, should be it should be doing that. Um, so you get this periodically throughout throughout the twentieth century. Is that people want Britain's border control system to be more like Australia? And nowadays you can see this again. So Priti Patel, um, you know, kind of, and the Conservatives they were always going. We want an Australian style point system. And we and they and they want to kind of have an Australian style border control system, which means detention of uh, of illegal arrivals, you know, but you know people seeking asylum, then they can't be illegal, but they want to cre- create this kind of fiction that people who arrive uh, in the country or, or attempt to arrive the country primarily by boat. Um, or, or via the channel um, that they uh, have come there irregularly, so they are illegal and they want to detain them or uh, prevent them from reaching Britain. And this is something that they've taken from Australia. So, uh, you know, that over the last 20 years, the Australian Navy has been used to push back boats coming from Indonesia um, and other places with migrants um, in the name of uh, safety, that they don't want people to make this treacherous journey from Indonesia to Australia by kind of boats. And you can see the same rhetoric happening that, you know, that they're on the, um, you know, the, the coast of Dover um, trying to prevent these boats from reaching Britain. And it really kind of um, feels the, the rhetoric that we've seen in Australia over the last 20 years really being amplified by the Home Office. Um, that people like Tony Abbott, who was a, a, a conservative, well, what, a conservative politician, what we call liberal politician, but it's not liberal, um, you know, <laughs> that, about, that he's been quite influential over there. He is now a trade ambassador for, for Brexit Britain. Uh, you know that he has links to people like 
uh, Nigel Farage and Daniel Hannan uh, and uh, Victor Orban over in Hungary. And there's kind of like this kind of right-wing fascination with Australia's strict borders and that people want to emulate it. Um, they don't say they want to emulate Italy, even though Italy has had, you know, a similar um, process of pushing back migrants, particularly trying to stop refugees coming from North Africa. Um, but they, but because Australia is kind of seen as like kind of a British cousin, you know, that we see that uh, Australia kind of uh, as as kind of something to be emulated. You know, similar to uh, I've seen over the last couple of days, this this kind of um, Brexit Britain is going to have a, an Australia deal in Australia Australia yeah. style deal with the EU. I don't even know what that means, um, really. <laughs> but but this kind of thing is that you can label like a, a right wing British policy. Oh, it's Australian style, so that's all good. You know, that's not good for Australia's reputation. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, yeah. I, I did see one uh, newsreader. I can't remember who now. Say, why didn't you just say Afghan style deal or you know Mongolian style deal? Because it would be exactly the same, um, which is brilliant. Um, yeah, did any of these policies, you know, throughout the history of Australian and British uh, kind of border control, did did any of it stop immigration or any of it stop asylum seekers? Because I mean, one of the things that I keep reading is that, for example, in in the UK, when we Brexit, all our EU immigration is just going to become lumped in with all the rest of the immigration we'll still have pretty much the same figures as we had before if anyone wants to come here again which i can't imagine but you know is it, it were it, was any of it effective in anything other than stoking hate well no so that's the thing is that uh, like it's very difficult for a country to stop people moving across borders you know you would have to be like a country like north korea or or something like that to stop people um, moving across borders, like so, Australia, Australia and Britain, even when they've had strict immigration control measures, they've still had lots of migration. But it just makes it difficult for certain kind of migrants. And even then, it's more it's it's more that how people experience. Crossing borders rather than keeping them out entirely, you know that that we still that Australia still has a, a refugee intake. Um, it just means that that some people uh, languish in detention for a number of years and, and end up, uh, you know, the kind of like uh, dying or self harming or or that kind of thing. You know, it, it doesn't stop people entering the country it just makes it more difficult and more um harsh for certain kinds of people um uh, and and you know that 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 that, that strict borders are a fiction but they are a deadly fiction because the the very the very real lives are affected uh, negatively um by this idea that you can stop people coming. And I guess it sort of adds to the whole us versus them narrative that's always mm. in the favour of kind of uh, right-wing dialogue. Mm. Um, I mean, speaking of which, uh, you know, to uh, 
I sort of try to think of a, a nice way and not a scary way to ask you this question. Um, it's, it's always with interviews like this. It's sort of at the end, you go, oh, yeah, world's terrible. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Um, but, you know, how concerned are you with all your studies uh, and all, all the research that you do? How concerned are you about the current rise of fascism across the Western world in particular? I know we've had we've had nice news in New Zealand this week and there's been, uh, well, Bolivia's a whole different thing, but that's a sort of left-wing leader. But, you know, um, the US election in two weeks, we'll see what happens. But, do, you know, how do you feel about it? Are you based on your research do you think it's going to get worse before it's tackled again or are you hopeful uh about how we're dealing with it now we've got to remain positive because if we just resign ourselves that it's going to get worse or that we can't do something about it then it will get worse but you know i'm optimistic uh some days i'm very optimistic some days i'm not so optimistic but i think that you've that um, I'm optimistic because I can see that people, that there are people who want to change things. Um, am I worried about the, the 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 surge of the right across the across the Western world? Yes, um, that's. Uh, it's not so much that a fascist government is going to get in to power. You know that there are authoritarian elements or kind of like populist right parties. So you know like. Donald Trump or kind of Bolsonaro in Brazil or Orban in Hungary, um, you know, that the, the kind of like authoritarian, authoritarian leaning right wing governments, you know, that the problem is the, the kind of the violence from below. So what every kind of, every security service across uh, the kind of English speaking world is saying is that the main, the kind of the, the increase in the terror threat from right wing extremists has grown. So, you know, say like the FBI or MI5 or ACO in Australia or um, the RCMP in Canada, uh, all were saying the same thing is, you know, that it's that right wing violence from below that's unpredictable. Um, that's the major problem. That's um, you know, yeah. So I'm not I'm not so much worried about the lurch into fascism by by uh, by government, but it's those um, um, you know the, the, the kind of the, those those extremists who end, who end up uh, in in political violence. That's what worries me, but. That's why we need this kind of a movements from below that are willing to challenge, willing to deny these people the space to promote their ideas. Uh, you know, the very, until very recently, it was like anti-fascists are overreacting. They call everyone fascist. They should be worried. And then it was like, oh, shit, where's all this fascism coming from? You know, someone should have done something <laughs> about it, you know, that... But it's like kind of like we were seen like the kind of people were seen as crying wolf for you know decades, and it's like until it you know comes back and bites the centre in the ass, you know that uh, you know that that's why my kind of point is that I'm optimistic because we've because there's people being vigilant um, about the threat because you want to nip it in you want to deal with it now and not deal with it in the future when it's too late yeah 
Yeah. Oh, good. I'm pleased. That's that's made me vaguely optimistic too. I still think we should know platform the internet, but I'll I'll campaign for that by myself. Um. So the last question. Thank you so much for your time, um, Evan. I really appreciate, it, especially as it's as it's pretty much night time for you as we're speaking. Um. The um the question I ask all the guests on the show, uh, with just the, the aim of furthering um good information, really. Um. Is that apart from yourself and, and your book and your Twitter, um, what writers, websites, or resources would you recommend that listeners check out in terms of well, political history, either tackling fascism or just anything that you go to really for information. I know you've mentioned Jeff Sparrow before, but is there anyone else that you could recommend? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I made a list, um, kind of websites that I th- that I think are good. Um, you know, that they, they're not always 100. percent You know, that there's many the times you go, oh shit, why are they writing that? So, like, I mean, uh, the Guardian is, is the Guardian is. is kind of the the mainstream paper that I will read. Um, but then websites like uh, Overland in Australia or Jacobin in the United States or Navarra or Tribune or New Socialist in the in the UK, those are kind of like the the kind of the news sites, the websites that I really enjoy reading or kind of not in, is enjoy the right word, that I read to stay, uh, you know, abreast of things. Um, journalists like Dawn Foster, who I mentioned before, she used to write for The Guardian, now she writes for Jacobin. Jason Wilson, who writes about uh, the right wing in America. Shane Burley as well, who has been giving great stuff from what's been happening in Portland over the last couple of months. Uh, uh, Nazreen Malik, who writes for The Guardian, she's, she's great. Um, there's a guy named Mike Wright, uh, who's on Twitter, who does these kind of brilliant kind of deconstructions of, of newspaper headlines um, that, uh, you know, I've only just found out about him recently, but I've been really enjoying his kind of deconstruction of the, of, of the press. And then also there's a whole bunch of academic authors, because I'm an academic, that, I, I, that I, I'll finish with mentioning uh, people like David Renton, who has a new book out with Pluto Press about uh, the history and theory of fascism. Uh, Aurelian Mondon and Aaron Winter, who wrote uh, Reactionary Democracy last year. Alana Lenton, who wrote um, a book that I totally just forgot uh, the name of. But Alana Lenton, uh, Gavin Titley, is free speech racist. Um, Jeff Sparrow, who I mentioned before, who wrote uh, Fascists Among Us. And then also um, my uh, someone who I've worked with before, John Pacini. Um, he's written about uh, the White Australia policy and the Labor movement um, and that kind of stuff. And I think it's really interesting. Oh, and one more, Elizabeth Humphreys, who wrote this kind of great book about the Australian Labor movement and how they kind of, or at the birth of neoliberalism in Australia, she got denounced by the ALP's former treasurer for writing nonsense, but she's just written this book and she's been uh, interviewed in Jacobin recently and it's great um, and really kind of challenges kind of centre Labor views. And I think that's enough, but I think that if uh, um, those, those are the things that I, I read and kind of engage with. 
Thanks tons to Evan for negotiating time zones so I could speak to him in Adelaide. And you can, of course, find Evan on Twitter at Evan is History. Uh, his blog featuring his many articles in a number of publications and his blog posts are at hatfulofhistory.wordpress.com. His Patreon, if you fancy sponsoring his research, is patreon.com forward slash Evan is History. And his recent book, No Platform, A History of Anti-Fascism Universities and the Limits of Free Speech, is available via Routledge Publishers on many of the major bookshops and sites or other army ranking denominations of bookshops or sites too. Sergeant bookshops? Maybe. Probably not. Shout out to you to Phoenix Andrews, former podcast, who suggested I drop Evan a line about cancel culture and no platforming, so thank you tons for that. Uh, suggestions are, of course, always welcomed because then I have less research work to do and I can instead spend my evenings flicking through several streaming services, wondering why I don't want to watch anything on any of them. Allow me such mind-numbing times by dropping me a line with who, what, where, how and why I should talk to on future episodes at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can embrace the Halloween spirit and appear outside my window on October 31st in the middle of the night wearing a hockey mask with the suggested recommendation written in blood across it. And I won't notice as I go to bed much earlier than that because there's really no need for days in 2020 to go on any longer than they have to. You'll likely just catch pneumonia and my window is one floor up so it could lead to a horrific accident. All I'm saying is it's probably just best to email, isn't it? We all know it's Mark Francois! And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And because Halloween and that, I'm still, I'm trying, I'm really trying. It's a special Parpol Boo Hotpol Goss Fact this week. Which political buildings are supposedly haunted or maligned? Yes, I suppose by the latter definition, it's all of them. But you know, I meant by spirits, not the drinking kind. Or yes, again, all of them. There is meant to be a ghost of Number 10 Downing Street spotted by a number of staff over the years of a lady in a white ball gown who travels between the state dining room and the pillared room. Though she's not been spotted lately, as many just assume it's the Prime Minister's latest one-nighter trying to sneak out without anyone noticing. The White House in Washington DC is apparently chock full of spectres and not just of democracy. 33rd president and host of Blockbusters, Harry Truman, reported knocking on his bedroom door in the very early hours, but checked to see no one there, and the Secret Service said not even a watchman was around at that time. Though I suppose it could have been his popularity running away. There are also supposed to be ghosts of same face upside down, Abraham Lincoln, who appears when the nation needs a leader most, so chances are he's been there solidly since 2016. There's also been sightings of the ghost of a president's daughter who calls out for help for her mother, and a first lady that's forever doing the laundry, which must be annoying when the place is basically a big machine set to spin. But one of the most spooky political buildings is 33 Shamnath Marg, a Delhi government building home to the Delhi Dialogue Commission, which provides policy direction to the government in India. The place is believed to be cursed or jinxed, as many politicians who's lived there over the years have met a tragic fate, including former Delhi chief minister who moved in in 2003, saying he didn't believe in superstitions. he clearly also never seen a horror film before, as saying that is basically like ghost bait. He fell ill soon after moving in and then died in a horrible way. Uh, Several other chief ministers that stayed there uh, ended up losing their jobs prematurely, but the current office has been there since 2015 without any unlucky happenings, because maybe whatever presence caused them thought it'd be too much hard work to make a situation more unlucky than being led by the world's worst mall Santa, Narendra Modi. Narendra! There you go. Uh, If you love that, please spread the word about the show, post on social media, or just do a Ouija board so you can tell the other side to tune in. If you hated it, why not curse someone you dislike to condemn them to a lifetime of subscribing and hearing every episode from start to finish at least 12 times over? 
If that's all too much to ask, then why not donate to the Kofi or Patreon or ACAR subscriber? That's money, not limbs, organs or monkey paws, please. Or, of course, give the show a dandy 5R review on your podcast app of choice. No, actually do five stars. I can't imagine five screams of terror will make anyone tune in, apart from the Home Secretary, who'll use it to help us sleep at night. Thanks. Tricks not treats to our cast, my brother the past sceptic, Cat Slay and Fatey Coxall. Uh, this won't be back next week, but it will return as Trump is held US president for a second term after winning only 2% of the public vote, but 100% of the Electoral College and 50 Cent, who decide together that as no one likes them, this was the next best thing they could do apart from eating worms. Within five minutes of re-election, Trump forgets to cancel the body doubles and is joined for his speech by three different Melanias before announcing that he's heard that first is the worst, so it'll be America second from now on and sells the Pentagon to North Korea in exchange for some tacos. This week's show was sponsored by the Monsters Collective. We just don't know what to do anymore. I've been redundant for four years now. Kids just laugh at me. They don't even notice me when the news is on. Halloween is meant to be the time of year that monsters, ghouls, ghosts and for some reason really sexy cats get to work and revel in scaring children and adults alike. But for years now, the world has become so scary that many are numb to the charm of monsters. And with the Covid pandemic and trick-or-treating banned, monsters are being asked to retrain by the UK Chancellor. All I'm good at is saying boo! Boo! See? With just a small donation to the Monsters Collective, we can work together to get these hideous creatures some jobs for the future, like maybe in cyber. I'm now a clandestine channel threat commander. I don't know what it is, but I mostly pull faces at fishes and I love it. Monsters Collective, because now it's scary for them too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.